Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here. We are uh, two weeks into this series called Playing with Fire, and like Bruce mentioned, we looked at, we're looking at some different areas in life that can cause some explosive damage depending on how we handle them. And so uh, last week we looked at the, the area of money. Um, today we're looking at sex, and next week we're looking at power. And each of these can really blow up depending on, on how they're handled. With each of these, they can kind of spark a flame that can create a wildfire that can create some long-term damage. Uh, many of us here in this room have already been burned by sex in, in one way or another. And so you might be here this morning and you can identify on one level with where we're gonna, uh, what we're going to discuss. Uh, it could be that you're here and you, you've been um, hurt and even used relationally. And you're still in the process of healing from that. Um, you might be in a relationship right now and maybe you experience a tremendous amount of pressure and tension tied to the whole area of sex in that dating relationship. Uh, could be that you're here and you're just battling with what feels like a constant battle to stay pure. And there's all sorts of things that are um, enticing us in this world to draw us towards um, sex that's out of order and out of balance. Um, some of you are here and you're married and your life is, is busy and work is uh, demanding. You might have kids and they could be very, very needy. And so sex maybe for you could be, and in your marriage could be more like a cold um, transaction. And it's not maybe what you had in mind. Um, could be that you're here and maybe you're, you've been hurt through unfaithfulness on some level. Um, or maybe you're just feeling guilty and you're here and you're like, ah, this is going to be tough because maybe there's some guilt tied to this whole topic. And so uh, wherever you're at, I just want to say God can really help. And if you will turn to him, um, he can really help. He could heal. And so I want to encourage you as we kind of go into this. That's really my aim is that through God's word, that God really come alongside of us and help us move forward in these areas. I want to ask God for help right now. So let's pray. This is a subject that um, as I've been preparing, I just really, you know, can easily put my foot in my mouth. And so um, I want to just pray and ask for God's help right now. So let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and the guidance that we get from it. It is the truth. And Lord, there's um, real real direction and help and hope for us. Lord, I pray that as we, as we clue into what you have to say, Lord, you give us um, a real sense of connection with you. And then, Lord, connect the dots in our mind that would um, help us to make progress in this area, to be living life in your inbounds and in experiencing your blessing in this area, Lord. I ask you to protect our time and guard it. Guard the words that I use. Just invite your Holy Spirit to speak through me. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Well, so today, yeah, we're going to talk about sex this morning. Also, we'll talk a little bit about romance because it comes up in this story that I'm going to share with you. Um, we're going to be looking at what in the scripture, what does the Bible say about this area? There's a story in the Bible, if you brought a Bible with you, you can flip to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 29. And we're going to look at a story from um, a man named Jacob and, and a lady named Leah. And there's a few other characters that will be in this story as well. But story of Jacob and Leah, they were a, a couple who got married. And I want to tell you about what happened in their life. Their story gives us a picture of some of the pitfalls of sex and romance and the pain that we can experience if we take the wrong approach in our pursuit for sex. Um, you find this, you know, you find Genesis 29 kind of, you get a little bit of historical context of this family and the, the family that Jacob grew up in. If you read 
Um, you can go check out these uh, the chapters um, just before this to learn a little bit more about Jacob. But I'll try to describe him to you. He was a twin. And so what we know of, of him is he was a twin. He was the younger of twins. And so his brother Esau was delivered first. His brother Esau came out first. And his brother was his dad's favorite. Okay? He was the favorite. Esau um, is described um, as a red, hairy individual. His, his name Esau comes out of the idea of this idea of a red person or red skin. And so, um, but he was also hairy. And so if you learn about this man, you learn later in other chapters that or actually in the previous chapter that he, yeah, he's, he's got hairy skin. And that's one of the big differences between him and Jacob is Esau is very hairy. Jacob, Jacob is more of a smooth skinned fellow. And so, but Esau, he is daddy's favorite. Okay. Um, part of the reason why he was his dad's favorite is because Esau was a skilled hunter. Um, so he was skilled. He could take down wild animals. And his father loved wild game. He loved the taste of wild game. And so on his palate was this, I want to eat meat. And so naturally Esau, the hunter, was his favorite because he was the one that would bring home the best game. Um, Jacob also could hunt, but he wasn't known for that. Um, Jacob, rather than going off to hunt, he would stay near um, the tents. He would stay near his family. Um, he, he could hunt. You, you see this. But, um, but beyond that, he could cook. And, and um, there's some clues into Jacob and Esau's life that, that you can draw out. But one of the big issues is that Jacob knew that he wasn't his father's favorite. And affirmation and respect is important to a man. It's really important to all of us that we are affirmed, that, that someone loves and values us. That's really important to all of us. For Jacob, he longed for the affirmation and the approval of his father. And um, because of that, Jacob grew up in the shadow of his brother Esau. Now, this is a very, very important point of this story and how it ties to sex in, in this. But Jacob, he grew up in Esau's shadow, and he never really seemed to get his dad's respect and full approval. And this was something that he longed for. And you can see how it develops as he becomes somewhat of a conniver as he's trying to prove his own worth at all costs. He keeps doing things in order to gain advantage, in order to be able to maybe push ahead of his brother to get his father's approval. And so if you take that understanding and you kind of fast forward in time, you can read about the search for his wife. That's what we're going to look at in Genesis 29. He, He goes to look for his wife. And his father, Isaac, sends him to his own homeland to find a wife. And so if you and I were Hebrew scholars and we were to read Genesis 29, we would see a bunch of signals in the text that show just how enamored Jacob really was with a woman named Rachel. Okay? He sees this lady named Rachel. And all the longings of his heart for meaning and for affirmation was wrapped up in this woman. If this woman, Rachel, could be his wife, she would be like a trophy trophy wife to show off for everyone but not just not just peers but really for his dad's approval he's constantly trying to gain approval from his father um, people in that day they didn't marry for love it was more like a business arrangement to get married okay there was a business transaction oftentimes among families and so but Jacob he was more modern in the way that he handled this he intended to marry the woman that he actually loved and longed to be with. He wanted to be with this lady named Rachel. And so when he meets Rachel, 
um, and he sees her. He's drawn in by her. He makes this arrangement with Laban, Rachel's father, to marry his daughter Rachel. And this is where we're going to pick, off, pick up. Genesis 29, verse 16 through 19. It says this. Now Laban had two daughters. Okay? The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. So two daughters, Leah, older, Rachel, younger. And then it says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And you're like, what does that have to do with anything? Leah's eyes were weak. Does that mean that she um, you know, wore some sort of ancient glasses? Was that, what was the issue here with Leah, and why is she described in this way? Um, most suggest that, that this means that her eyes were plain. There was nothing striking in their appearance. There was nothing um, that really drew you in from her eyes. And in that culture, the eyes were the primary source of attraction. And so if you think about the ancient cultures, there was a lot of covering up. You know, there was a lot of covering up. People were heavily veiled. um, And so the eyes would oftentimes be what would be exposed. We don't know if that's the only thing that was exposed, but that's what a person could really connect with. And the eyes... Um, have tremendous amount of power, even here and now. You know you have someone's attention. If, if you're talking to someone, they're bouncing their eyes around, you want their eyes. Um, when a guy and a gal connect and they see each other, there's sometimes, you know, we talk about this spark between a couple, and there's something about the eyes. Well, that, that's part of what's happening here is Lee, there was nothing striking about her eyes, and, but there was this um, really striking, stunning um, side of Rachel, um, not just in her eyes, but it says she was beautiful in form and appearance. And so he sees her, and he's just caught up with this younger daughter, Rachel. Look at verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you. He said this to her father. I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So they, they agree on these terms. Seven years of work for my daughter. The next seven years seem like a, a few days because of how much Jacob really loved and was just enamored with, with Rachel. For him, it was a small price to pay for the woman who would really heal all the wounds, really of an upbringing that was, was not fulfilling for him. And so this woman is more than just a woman. Again, this is the trophy wife. And now Laban, he saw just how lovesick Jacob was, and so he took advantage of the situation. Her father, whenever, when Jacob asked you know, for, for Rachel, this is the response. Look again at what it says in verse 19. It's better that you get her than some other man. Jacob wanted her so bad that he heard yes. Now, that's not exactly what he said, is it? He doesn't really say she's yours. He just, and so you can, as you read this, you might first think, okay, she's get, he's going to give her Rachel. Um, but that's not exactly what he says. In the middle of this wedding celebration, Jacob, he gets drunk, and Laban brings his wife to him, heavily veiled. Okay? Jacob consummates this, this marriage with sex that night, but he wakes up in the morning, and he finds Leah in his bed, not Rachel. He's deceived. He's tricked. Now, can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine? Just how you'd feel in that moment. You've worked seven years and you get tricked in this way. And you don't get her. You get her sister. And 
Uh, now, Jacob, he was, a, he was a trickster. And so what this is, is really an irony here. In many ways, this is ironic. The man who tricked his brother out of his birthright, because Jacob and Esau, there was a tension in their relationship because Isaac, their father, loved Esau more, the hunter. At one point, Esau's out in the fields. He's hunting. He comes back from a hunt. And Jacob is, is cooking this stew, this red stew with lentils in it. And Esau, he says, I'm famished. Can, give me some of your stew. I'm going to die. I'm so hungry. And Jacob says, first, give me your birthright. Give me your birthright, and I'll give you some stew. Esau says, well, I mean, you read the text, and it basically says, he, he figures, it's better off that I eat than, than die. And so what good will my birthright be if I'm dead? So he takes the stew in place of his birthright, and he's really tricked here. He's tricked. He, he, this red stew draws him in, and he takes it. It's interesting. Esau's name has to do with the fact that he had this red skin. He's drawn in by this red stew. Jacob tricks his brother. Another point, Jacob tricks his father. When his father's um, eyes are failing, he can no longer see well. At a certain point, he's, he tells his son Esau, go get me some good game, bring it, and, and I'm going to give you my blessing today. Esau goes out, but Isaac's, um, Isaac's wife overhears what's going on. She goes and gets Jacob and says, your father's about to give your older brother his blessing. Here. I'll make some good food. I know your dad really likes it. Let's trick your father so you get the blessing that was intended for your brother. So he tricks the father. And and this is ironic here. He gets deceived here. It comes back around. You know, what goes around, it comes around. When Jacob complained about what happened here with Laban, he points out, Laban points out that he should have known. The custom in our culture is that the older daughter must be married first. This is what he says. And so... At this point, Jacob, he still wanted Rachel, so he, he says, look, I'll work for another seven years. And so he does. He works for another seven years, and Rachel is given to him to be his wife as well. Laban gives Rachel to Jacob seven days later. Basically, a week after his first wedding, he gets another wife. And Jacob really is a reminder of the dangers involved in the pursuit of sex and romance. When we're so focused on sex and romance and intimacy and connecting with another person, when we elevate that, to the most ultimate place, it clouds our vision. Jacob, you know, he, he assumed this was the medicine that he needed to really heal his hurt, to have this woman. And whenever we get in that place, we can set ourselves up to make some really foolish and destructive choices when we think we need them or we need it right now. And so he wanted and he thought he needed her so badly that he heard and he saw only what he wanted to hear and see. And he himself was deceived. Now, he was very vulnerable to Laban's deception. We're very vulnerable. You showed in the video earlier how sex is a good thing. God said God made it to be a good thing, but we've put it up on this pedestal and it's become this ultimate thing. And because of that, it clouds our vision, sets us up to make foolish choices. And so if we don't approach this, this area carefully, it could implode. And we can make difficult or very, very difficult um, damaging decisions. So take a look at how all of this impacted Leah. Okay, Jacob gets Leah as his wife. Then he gets Rachel a week later. But look at how this impacts Leah. Leah is deeply wounded in this process. Look at verse 30, Genesis 29:30. So Jacob went into Rachel also. What that means is after she's given him in marriage, 
they consummate their their marriage with sex. So they have sex with each other. And it says, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Somehow this is known to all. And he served Laban for another seven years. Now Leah, she became the girl that nobody wanted. And in the process, she sets her hope on getting Jacob's love. She decides to, to, to pursue him more and more. And look at what she does. Every day, she would really long to be loved by her husband. But every day, she would see this man that she longed to be with in love with another person, her sister. And it was like a knife in the heart every day. And this was an empty pursuit for Leah. And the, the reality for us is if we do not place our hope in the only one who can meet our deepest needs, we come up empty as well. Now, Leah, she starts chasing an empty thing herself, trying to get her hopes fulfilled in a relationship with her husband. And the truth is, not even the best person in the world can give our soul what they need, what it needs, ultimately. One author wrote this. He said that if you put your ultimate hope in a person to meet your need, then you think you've gone to bed with Rachel, and you get up in the morning, and it's Leah. See, that's for all of us. If we start assuming this person that I'm, that I'm with, that I'm dating, that I'm married, they're going to give me, then if, if that's who that person represents to you, that they're the ultimate hope, then you, you've gone to bed with Rachel, you wake up, it's Leah. It, it leaves you empty. This is a hollow, empty feeling. And for a time, Rachel was barren. She couldn't have any kids. So they're trying to have kids to, to have a family, but God doesn't open her womb. God instead opens Leah's womb, and she begins to give birth to children. And I want you to see how much Leah longed to be accepted by her husband. And you see it because of the clues in the names that are given to her children. Her firstborn son is is given the name Reuben. Look at verse 32. And Leah conceived, she bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. There's a couple of Hebrew word plays in here, okay? The word uh, look or to see is the Hebrew word ra. And it's combined with another word here that, that could mean misery or affliction, bonyi. So ra, bonyi, Reuben, you see the, the connection there. She's, she's putting a lot of hope in this name. There's also word play because the, the word for he will love me or my husband will love me, it has the same idea. It's, it's ye'ebani, and it's, it's this... You can hear Reuben, or at least the end of the word Reuben. And people look at this, and they study and say, look at these word plays here. She's clearly putting her hope into this child that now God's given us a child together. He's going to love me. And sadly, she still comes up unloved. She's not loved by him. Then look at her second son is born. Still, she's exposing her pain. Number two, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. The word heard is, is the word Shema, to hear. And so she names him Simeon. Sounds like Shema. And it's the idea of God heard. God's hearing my cry. I'm hated by my husband. Now maybe God's going to give me what I want, my husband and his love. And again, it's not coming together. Then her third son, she has another son. His name is Levi. Look at verse 34. It says, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Uh, the Hebrew words for attached, it's Yilaveh. Yilaveh, and you can hear Levi in that. She calls him Levi. Again, maybe now he'll be attached. Keep producing these children. 
But once again, it just turns out empty. It's not what she hoped for. Finally, when her, when her last son is born, she makes this breakthrough statement. This time she says, I will praise the Lord. The word praise actually means it's yada. I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she calls his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. The word Judah actually means let him be praised. She's praising the Lord here in this birth. She decides to stop wrapping everything up in this relationship and in the hope she has that her husband or her children are going to bring it together. And she shifts her deepest hopes away from them to the Lord. And if we don't keep our longing for intimacy, for sex, for romance in check, we find ourselves in a very vulnerable place and we keep getting hurt more and more. And if you're married and you're expecting your husband or your wife to meet your deepest needs, then just like in the story, you'll come up empty and you may even seek that out from someone else because they are not able to fill your deepest needs. God has placed them in your life to be a blessing. Good can come through that relationship, but it's not all going to come through them. And if you're looking and you're, you're disappointed because of that, it may be you're placing your hope in the wrong place. If you're single and you've decided that your life will never find fulfillment until you, know, you are with this person, this guy or this gal, and you think, they're, they're what I need to really heal, then, again, you can't see clearly, and you're set up for potential deception. You're, you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable place, just like what you see happen in Jacob's life. Um, point is this. Married or single, shift your hope to God. Regardless of where you're at in your relationships, you have to shift your ultimate hope to God. He's the only one who can fill the empty place in our soul. He's the only one who can guide us to a walk that's fulfilling in life. And this story, it shows us just how important relationships really are and how um, sex and intimacy and romance can derail our sense of worth and our sense of purpose if they're not handled correctly, if they get out of order. God created sex to be a blessing as it's kept within the boundaries that God has intended. And so God has given this boundary. God designed sex to be a precious and guarded gift. This is why God made sex. It's, it's to be a precious and guarded gift. Look at how sex is described as something sacred between a husband and a wife. Look at New Testament, Hebrews verse thirteen, chapter 13, verse 4. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all. We're to hold up marriage as this sacred, honorable thing. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral, and the adulteress. When the scripture mentions here the marriage bed being undefiled, he's not talking about the mattress. He's not saying, you know, he's not talking about the sleep number. He's talking about sex in marriage. Let the marriage bed, let, let sex be undefiled. Let sex in marriage be protected and honored. It's interesting that honoring marriage is linked directly to sex in the Bible again and again and again. And this is an area that is so critical. And you might think, oh, it's just it's, it's, it's one of the perks of marriage. or It's actually, it's, it's, it's right at the core of the, the commitment and the intimacy that, that you share with your spouse, to be one with each other. And it's, it's a powerful thing that God has created. It's a gift that he has given. But it is to be honored. And there's to be a sense of delight that this adds to life. The book of Song of Solomon talks about the delight 
of sex. But it's a gift. And whenever sex is happening outside of marriage, whenever we're going to, to meet those needs and those longings outside of marriage, the delight of the gift is gone. Look at how the message paraphrased. I like how it's paraphrased in, message, in the message. It says this, Honor marriage and guard the sac- sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband. God draws a firm line against casual and illicit sex. See, God designed sex. It was his idea. We didn't, we didn't discover sex like a scientist would discover a new formula. It's not like in the timeline of world history, <laughs> you know, in 13-whatever. This guy, this brilliant guy, discovers sex. No. This was God's idea. His patent is on it. And since it was his idea, when we mess with his idea, we invite judgment, the scripture is saying, on ourselves in some way. We open up problems. Fire starts. And so Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, reminds us that God takes immorality, sexual immorality, he takes it as a sin against himself. And so we don't often realize what happens when we don't take this warning seriously until it's too late and then we get burned. We get burned anytime we take sex outside of marriage, anytime we try to enjoy this gift with anyone besides our spouse. And so this happens in three main ways. The first way is this. The first way we can get burned sexually is through pornography. And pornography is, is no, nothing new. It's, it's certainly far more accessible than it ever was in the past because of the internet, TV, all, all that. There's just so much access. And pornography is it's a virtual shortcut that short circuits God's plan for life or for sex. It's a shortcut. But pornography is more than just a fantasy. It used to be that, you know, it was, it was almost common that this is just what men do. It's, it's, they, they, they look... Men are more driven by their eyes, and so they need to look at things. And so it, it used to be that the impact of pornography, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Now more and more, and I think I'm saying that in the culture. It's just seen as kind of a common thing. Couples use this even in their relationship to kind of maybe spice things up. And, and um, it's, it's, it's placed, in, you know, in a category where it's, it's kind of harmless. Pornography seems neutral. But more and more, brain-based research is coming out and it's showing that the brain and reasoning and the emotions are impacted by pornography just like someone who's on drugs. It has an addictive side to it. It also impacts relationships. It also can impact marriage directly. Now, research is showing that the proportion of men today between the ages of 25 and 34 who've never walked down the aisle is increasing. It's six times higher than it was in 1970 and with the rise of pornography that's part of what may be contributing to that it's not the only factor but it it is one significant factor is the rise of pornography and the accessibility of pornography and because the issue and the question is why find a real woman if i can have one virtually the problem with it is that it cuts a man down in his mind and it drastically lowers his self-respect and we think this is going to help me in some way, and it actually lowers our, our view of ourselves. We look at the mirror and we see guilt and shame and someone who's using others for his own gain and pleasure. It's a dead end. It leaves us empty. The second area that can burn us is the area of 
just a broad area called sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is when we refuse to wait for God to provide a husband or a wife. We go outside of marriage for the pleasure of sex in some form. We're not going to get into all the details of how this could look, but with sex, there's a deep connection that goes beyond the physical. So in sex, you're giving someone a part of yourself that you won't get back. You're giving something to them that you won't get back. There's a connection and a bond that's formed when you have sex. And so what happens when you stick your tongue on a freezing cold flagpole? You get stuck, right? It sticks. You leave a piece of your tongue on that pole. It sticks. When you have sex with someone, you leave a piece of yourself with that person and everyone you sleep with. Everyone you share in some immoral way, you leave a piece of yourself with that person. And actually, we can leave pieces of ourselves scattered all over the place. That is why nothing wounds quite like sexual sin. First Corinthians chapter 6, it talks about this issue of how we're to honor God with our bodies because when we sin sexually, there's something going on different. There's an emotional um, uh, connection and bond, and there's, there's, there's a sin against God, but it goes deeper than that for us. You know, you, you sin in other ways, and maybe you, you can get over it. This sexual sin is much more challenging and difficult to work through and to get over, whether you've been involved in that and you've been initiating that or you have been used in some way. There is a, there's a long-lasting impact in this area. And it's not just a, a physical thing. We know that. It's more than that. Because we're more than just a bundle of body parts. We're more than just a bundle of instincts and nerve endings. Look at this quote. It's attributed to G.K. Chesterton. He says, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel, a brothel's a house of prostitutes, is really looking for God. He's really looking for that which can take away his aloneness. There's a, there's a search for something deeper. People get promiscuous sexually because we think it will take away our aloneness. We think it's going to fill a hole. Just as Jacob put a lot of weight and stock into this relationship with Rachel, the woman who captured his attention. But we know it's more than physical. Outside of the boundaries God intends, sex leaves us empty. The last way we get burned is the area um, of adultery. Adultery is this. It's defiling the marriage covenant and the marriage bed. In other words, it's sex with someone other than your spouse if you're married. Going back to the verse in Hebrews, we're commanded to honor marriage. We're to, we're, to, we're to hold it up. We're to protect it. It's sacred. If you're, if you're not married, the way that you honor your marriage is to take God seriously enough and wait to enjoy sex within marriage. To, n- to not even creep up to that line like, well, how far can we go in this relationship? Well, s- you know, stay back from the cliff. Don't creep up to the line because it's a slippery slope once you start heading down the road. And so if you are married, you honor your marriage by living out your commitment to love one another for the rest of your days. You don't look for love and for sex anywhere else. So marriage is to be protected. Before I wrap up, though, it's, it's very easy to be discouraged in this area because so many of us have been burned in some way, but we've played with fire in this area in regards to sex. And so I want to encourage you, you're not beyond God's reach 
You're not beyond God's reach in this area. It's not too late to start over. It's not too late to experience God's forgiveness and healing and hope. When we look to God, he's more than able to help us. The scars that we have, they can actually be pain that brings us to remember God's grace and the healing that only he can bring. If you've blown it, you've never confessed your wrongdoing before God, confess it to him. As we're singing or as I pray, you can just say, God, I have, I have played with fire in this area. I've moved, I've moved way past some boundaries, and, and I need to confess that to you. Would you forgive me? And just in your own mind and heart, just, God, I've, I've blown it in this area. I've sinned against you in this way. Would you forgive me? Would you, would you help me to take the steps I need to do to, to have freedom? Help me to shift my hope to you. When you do that, the Bible calls that repentance. It is both a change of mind, but the, with a real intention to, to change the way you do your life. For many of us, that involves having a conversation with a, with a trusted friend, with maybe a group leader, one of our staff here. We could pray with you and for you and maybe point you in the right direction. Uh, but what the Bible says, that change is called repentance. It's, I was going my way, now I turn around, I'm going God's way. Don't just... Think, well, I'm just going to start fresh. I'm not going to acknowledge that to God because you'll never really deal with the guilt and the shame. You need to experience God's forgiveness. And maybe that's something that's hanging you up in your spiritual growth is never really acknowledging this area. I wanted to provide some helpful resources. On the back, you'll see there's some additional resources. If you flip it over, you'll see um, a great, the first book on there is a, a great backdrop book. Give some backdrop perspective called Men and Women Enjoying the Difference. Larry Crabby just shows how our wiring is different intentionally, but how things can get warped when we look out for our own interests and our own well-being, which can cause a lot of problems as it relates to how we interact in, among, uh, you know, just among the genders. Second book is, is specifically for married couples. It's called Hedges, Loving Your Marriage Enough to Protect It. It's never, you know, it's you, you want to start early at fair-proofing your, your marriage, building a hedge, building a wall around your marriage. And this is sacred. There's a line here. God draws a line. I'm building a wall. That's what this idea is. It gives some real practical ways to identify if there's vulnerable areas to your marriage and then what are steps you can take um, to build hedges to prevent affairs from starting. A third one is Intended for Pleasure. This is a book for married couples, the bestseller been around for quite a while, and it, it just gives helpful information and biblical wisdom on the area of sex and intimacy and relationship. And so that's to be a help for you if you're a married couple. And then the last one for men, there's this book called Wired for Intimacy. talks about how pornography hijacks the male brain. talks about some of the, the man who writes it. He's a neuroscientist. He's a researcher. He talks about the connection of pornography and the male brain. And not just to say, look, the problems that this causes and for you to be like, oh, this is the this is what I've experienced, but to, to see what's the path to freedom. Um, the rest of the story from, from Jacob, Rachel, and Leah is this, that Leah, she turned to God. She names her son Judah. This time I will praise the Lord. She praises God. She turns her hope away from the earthly relationship, she, she's, and she turns it to God. And because of that, she was the one through whom her generation, the Messiah, was born. Through, through Judah's line is where Jesus eventually was, came through that line. And so God used her. There was healing there. And 
There's all sorts of lessons and thoughts we can we can talk further about. One of the things that impacts me is, and I, I have two sons, and some of you have boys, and, or maybe a you know a mix. Well, you either do have boys, girls, or some mixture of those. But but just the power of relationship is one of the things I think about in this. The power of helping my children develop healthy sexuality and just the future for their relationships is so much of that is my relationship to them and the and the way I connect with them and show them that I love and value them and, and being careful with areas of favoritism, being careful with what I with what I go crazy and, and, and get excited about, just that I'd find what should I be getting excited about for him and for him and for her? And making sure that it's not way out of order because this stuff can have um, some real impact. And so, and if it does, if you're in a place where you're like, ah, I've, I've got to backtrack and I've got to go back, you know, with God's help, you can do that. We want to be a part of that. We would love to help you um, in this area of parenting or in the area of just healing. And so let us know how we can serve you and your family in this way. I want to invite our, our worship team back up to the stage and um, invite our ushers to prepare to receive the offering this morning. And on the back of the connection card or on your listening guide, you'll notice that we left next steps blank. And so really, I want to encourage you to write down any specific step that you feel like you need to take. If God has spoken to you about something specific, just jot that down on your listening guide. If it's something you'd like us to be aware of or pray for, you can write that on your connection card. And when the offering comes around, you can drop that in the basket as it came as it comes by. If you came this morning prepared to give and contribute um, to our offering, then we, we invite you to give, support the ministry of Orange Crest Community Church. Um, we do what we do through the financial support of those who call this church um, home. And there's different ways to give. There's some giving options you'll see here on the screen in a moment. And so a, a good majority of, of folks give outside of the service in, other way, in one of these other ways to support uh, the ministry. But um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this time of looking at the Bible. And, and um, Lord, I pray that as we've studied the life of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, Lord, I'm certain that you've spoken on some level to each of us here. And maybe I pray that we would take note of what applications we can we can leave with and wrestle with and begin to work into our lives. I ask you for the courage to identify specifics this morning. Courage to also take the steps of faith and obedience to you. I pray for the marriages in this room. I pray that we would put our hope in you, God, that you would be our ultimate hope, that we'd pursue with a whole heart our love for you, Lord. And then that towards our spouse, Lord, we would we would really honor you in the way that we handle that relationship, that we would honor the marriage bed, we'd honor our covenant that we've made. Lord, help us to keep working on our marriage, Lord. Even for the weekend seminar coming up, Lord, if we've been on the fence about should we go or should we not go, Lord, I pray that we would see more and more people signing up, Lord. Thank you for the the many families already that have signed up for that. I pray that we would just get a whole um, uh, lot more signing up and attending to just grow and build their marriage. Lord, I pray for those that are in relationships, that are dating and trying to navigate that. For those that are single, Lord, I pray for for each person here, Lord, that we would shift our hope to you. 
bless the offering we're about to receive. May you use it, God, to further your kingdom. Help us to grow in the area of generosity, Lord. We ask you to help us to um, continue to put you first in all things. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.